Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here, and back with another podcast for you on the Flex Diet Podcast. Uh, today, I have a special treat for you. Uh, my good buddies, uh, Jeb and Dean, uh, who set up a brand new mentorship through Compound Performance. Uh, you can find an older podcast I did here with my good buddy, Kyle Dobbs from Compound Performance. Uh, Dean and Jeb have both been on the podcast before, so look for episodes from them too. Um, but on this one, this is an interview that is actually used in the new Compound Performance Nutrition Mentorship. And I get paid $0 to, <laughs> to support it, but they're doing great stuff, so I wanted to help support it. And I asked them if I could use this interview uh, that I did for them, which is inside the mentorship, uh, if I could put it up as a video and include it in the podcast. And they graciously said yes. So in this podcast, I talk with them about the PhD process I went through, my PhD in exercise physiology, a little bit into math about linear versus nonlinear statistics. Hope it doesn't bore you all too much, but it is important because most research studies are looking at the averages. And if you're a coach or working with people, you are not generally working with an average. You're working with an N of one or an individual. So understanding those differences and stats and variability analysis, I think is important. Uh, how do you condense information? Uh, kind of the process I went through to create the Flex Diet Cert and condensing down information, which I think is much more useful uh, if you want the large breadth of knowledge, then take a college course and go that route. Uh, there's a time and a place for that, of course, but most people want more of the information and how do you condense that, but still respect the context and make sure that it is accurate. We then talk a little bit about the physiologic flexibility cert, uh, different brain structures, such as the limbic versus the prefrontal cortex. What is the difference there? I'm experimenting with uh, crawling into a large tank of cold water for well over a year and a half. And a little bit of bantering back and forth about calories in, calories out, and that uh, can we measure exercise uh, really close and use that as a metric for calories out. Uh, but nothing uh, is done in a vacuum. So enjoy this podcast here on the Compound Performance. If you need more information about their mentorship, uh, go to the link that you'll find below here or just Compound Performance. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, oh. All right, guys. So, um, you know, in this series we have going here with our uh, our interviews uh, with our um, favorite fitness professionals, uh, we have a longtime friend of ours, Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Um, Mike is like one of like three people I would say I've known longest in the fitness industry. My first seminar I ever went to, I met Mike. Dean, I know Mike was one of the biggest early influences on him and, and really uh, kind of brought, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but Mike kind of brought you into the industry really uh, yeah. introduced you to a lot of people. And, and, and uh, so, um, 
from a personal level, a professional level, an education level, uh, Mike is is definitely been one of the biggest influences on both of our uh, careers and and our trajectory. So, um, you know, that's kind of explaining what we're we're trying to do here in this mentorship. I mean, Mike is is one of our mentors, so so it's so perfect to have him on. So, um, you know, Mike, for those of you, I'm pretty sure everyone knows you, but for those who might not know you, can you just give yourself a quick like background intro? I know there is no quick intro because you. <laughs> Have between your education and your professional life, it's pretty large, but, like but we'll 10, do the best 10, we can. 10 PhDs, like, uh, all these things. Yeah. You, have, you, you have to list them off, though. <laughs> cool. Yeah, thank you so much for that wonderful intro. Awesome to know you guys for so long. Thank you for having me on here. It's a great honor. Um, yeah, so I did 18 years of college full-time, <laughs> which I would not recommend to anyone. I definitely did not start out that way. Um, so I did a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science as my undergrad, minor in math, minor in chemistry, uh, two years of postgraduate work, and then did a master's in mechanical engineering, more on the biomechanics side, but my thesis was on heat transfer. So how do you uh, do a computer model of a monkey in front of a big ass microwave transmitter, which was later used for the military to make their own ray gun to shoot people, <laughs> which is actually true. You've got something called the active <laughs> denial system. Every time you bring the, that up, I think about Austin Powers and like the sharks with yeah. lasers. And I know that's like not what it is, but like uh, that's, in my head, that's what you did. Like you researched that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so funny at the time. They're like, it was so classified. They couldn't tell me it was classified. And so I published the, the paper in the IEEE journal, peer reviewed journal. And I'm like, hey, there's like these three other people from Brooks Air Force Base that just spontaneously appeared on my work. I'm like, that's kind of fishy. And my advisor was like, oh, just don't worry about it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so finished that, decided <laughs> I'm never going back to school again after eight years of full time. That lasted about two years. I worked in the medical device field for about 10 years, uh, cardiovascular products, pacemakers, defibrillators. I started doing a PhD in biomedical engineering. I did that for, God, almost five years. Finished all the classwork except for two classes. Uh, decided I didn't really want to do any more math. So and I was spending all my free time uh, doing some training, going to conferences, just annoying the piss out of people at conferences. Because I would sit there and I'd be in the back. I'm like, hey, did you guys see this study on this thing? And they're like, no. I'm like, oh, but you definitely read this study about this thing. They're like, no. <laughs> like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, but you guys, you're trainers, right? You guys read research, right? They're like, no, we come to these <laughs> conferences. Like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I just annoyed a bunch of people at conferences for a while. Uh, went over to the physiology department and started there. And literally the first meeting, my advisor walks in. He's like, hey, we got two new projects. Uh, one's on metabolic flexibility. One's on heart rate variability. And they both involve math. And he looks around the table and he points at me at the end. He's like, you math boy, whatever your name is. Like, these are your projects now. I was like, oh shit, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> like I dropped out of the other program because I got tired of doing math. I go to the physiology to do physiology stuff and I get assigned stuff that has to do with math. But the math was relatively easy by that point, uh, comparatively speaking. Uh, so my PhD took seven years full time. <laughs> and since then I haven't gone back for any formal school if i did my wife would probably kill me and rightfully so <laughs> what do you um, go back for so, like, at this point like if, if you that was actually 
It was actually the greatest thing once I finished my PhD. Not only was it just the sense of relief of like, thank God I made it and you know didn't drop out and I got done. And then it was like, oh, I can take and study whatever I want. And since I run my own business, no one really is going to tell me yay or nay. I don't need to apply it for a degree. I don't even care if anyone even knows about it. It doesn't matter. So for me, that was actually like the coolest thing. Because up until that point, you're like, okay, I need to take this class. I got to take biostats. And you, there's a whole bunch of things you have to do as requirements. And whenever you take something outside of that, okay, now you're adding something extra that you don't really get credit for. And you're kind of taking away from other things. So it was super nice just to be like, oh, hey, I can just do whatever continue net I want. Oh, this is great. <laughs> and then on the training side, started training people 2006 to the CA, CSCS. Train people in person for a while, commercial gyms. So they filed bankruptcy and uh, kicked me out. So at that point, I decided, screw this. I'm just training people in my garage. So called up Jim Lendler, who was working at Elite FTS at the time, and had a two-hour conversation about uh, death metal training and how I should do more testosterone. Uh, <laughs> bought a rack from him. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love Jim, but like that's the only place you could have those types of conversations. And it would be like... <laughs> okay kind of expected like you know you're, you're calling there it's okay i kind of get it that makes sense <laughs> uh so I started training people in my garage and then eventually god probably 2011 2012 i switched to training people online uh, just because of what we kind of want to do with our lifestyle and where we wanted to go and did that and have a couple certifications flex diet cert physiologic uh flexibility certification still do online training uh one-on-one clients and yeah fun stuff it's actually a pretty quick version of it I'm, yeah I'm surprised. trying to condense it down most people don't really care that much so <laughs> well it's if you've heard other your podcasts like even your earlier ones it, that, that's that's a and maybe i've still have heard it like 10 times at this point and then i've heard it in person because it's way crazier in person when you when you look at your your actual school load and what you did it's like I don't think people actually understand what whatever seven years of PhD full time means. It, means it was, were, yeah, it was by far like the hardest thing I ever did in my entire life. Like no, like no question because at the end I was still working uh, part time for a medical device company because of basically just benefits, right? So we had right. bought a house. I had gotten married during that time, and yeah, I had a stipend for doing research, but they gave me what $600 a month, you know, yeah. it's like, that doesn't even pay for half my house payment, you know? Yeah. So it's like unrealistic that you could live on that. Plus the insurance is just horrible. Um, so I made a deal with where I was working. I dropped down to 24 hours a week, was on call full time. And then about four and a half years into that, I'm like, Oh, I'll be done in a half a year. It'll be five years. This is great. So I hired a business coach, started ramping up my online training and at that point, everything just got stretched out and ended up being seven years. So the last two and a half years were just horrible because I was, you know, I was paying a business coach $2,500 a month. I was still trying to do stuff, you know, with him. And it always looked like I'm like, oh, okay, it'd just be a few months more longer, right? I never really had a hard timeline of when I was done. So yeah, the last two and a half years were just like miserable you, you know you're screwed when you're collecting data because you have to be in the lab at five in the morning and then your first break is nine where you have 20 minutes to go take a caffeine power nap in the back of your car and then come back to the lab and then go to work in the afternoon come back to the lab and then go back home 
and it's you're leaving the lab at nine at night and you're seriously wondering like why am i even going home i gotta be back here at five in the morning so a couple of nights i actually slept in one of the we have a hospital bed in the other room for testing so i just slept in there <laughs> never went back home <laughs> It's crazy, like, like listening yeah. to all these people, like, you know, how you're like Trexler talking about, yeah. you know, like, he's like, you know, like, they kind of barely train anymore. And it's like, they got into this stuff because it was like, they love yeah. training. But then it's <laughs> like, all of a sudden, it's like all the things that I loved and where I got into this, like, now I don't have time for those things. And it's oh, brutal. It, it's not to tell people not to do their PhD. I think you can do oh, whatever no. you want. But like, it, you can call you a doctor now. Like, is that like the biggest benefit here? <laughs> Probably. No, nobody does it anyway. Nobody cares. So, I mean, I literally got to the point where I was like, okay, am I going to finish my degree at this institution? You know, and for a while yeah. it didn't look like I was because my third study had fallen apart. Nothing I did wrong. It's just the data didn't work out. Like we didn't find what we thought and they're like, we're not publishing it. I'm like, but we got the data. Like we, we got a result. That's just not a positive result. And I said, no, we're not publishing it. Like, what do you mean we're not publishing? I spent a year and a half working on this thing. And you're, I need a third publication in order to finish my PhD. Um, I studied previous to that. I couldn't publish because the data, the standard deviation was too, too wide. Meaning that, oh, you must suck when you did the ultrasound measurements. I'm like, well, what if I just got like highly variable people, right? Because we're doing healthy measurements on blood flow. Yeah. And it turns out that, you know, there's a huge variation in healthy population. And I just happened to happen to get like the outliers on both ends, right? Which makes your stats look horrible. They're like, no, no, it'll never pass publication. So that study was done. So I have a year left before I have to be done or I get nothing, right? There's a hard term seven-year limit. And at that point, I'm thinking, oh, man, I tried to get another study going. I started it. And I literally had a discussion with my wife. I'm like, okay, if I don't graduate from this university, is this something I really want to do? Am I okay to transfer to another university somewhere else, fly back home like once a weekend, knowing I have to start all my research over again? So research won't transfer. And she's like, yeah, I think if this is something you really want to do, then then that's okay. All right. So I kind of crossed the threshold of, okay, this is something I'm going to do for no other reason other than I just want to do it. Right. Because if I looked forward into the future, I think I would have regretted not doing it. And even if that meant transferring to another university, you know, doing something, you know, pretty crazy at that point. So, yeah. I think this is such a good, like, kind of corollary to just, like, so many things we talk about is, like, especially, you know, I, I get on this big thing of, like, you know, what is discipline, what is motivation? And it's, like, when you really truly value something and like it doesn't matter what the obstacles are it's right. like this is something that that i i and, and for, like you said if for no other reason then this is just something i really truly want yeah. and it's like the 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 like things that the the things we will go to in order to make that happen are on like unthinkable. Like if you really look back on that time now and like with where you're at and, and like, you know, happy that you did it. But like, if you had known at the beginning of that, what would have, it would have entailed that whole thing might have not ever happened. If, if someone told oh, you, yeah. Hey, here is 12 or 13 years of your life to get to this outcome. It's yeah. a tough sell. No, I mean, I, 
if I knew everything that went into it, I probably would just not, I would have not done it, which is a weird catch 22, right? Because there's, you know, the sunk cost fallacies of, right. And that's what I was doing with my PhD in biomed. I had gotten so far down the path and I had a hard time finding research because I worked for a biomed company at the time. Uh, that particular company was not sponsoring labs, University of Minnesota. So even to get an NDA, an NDA, so legal stuff to say, hey, I'm not going to tell anyone your trade secrets. Uh, even just funding was very, very difficult. And you kind of have to have funding in order to use equipment and do everything else. But at the same point, I had I was I had two classes left, you know, to finish the classwork portion of it, even though I hadn't started research. And that took me, you know, four and a half years. And all I kept thinking was, okay, if I just need a couple more years of research, I can be done with it and then decide to do whatever I want at that point. And I remember sitting in a class on MRIs. I had to take electrical engineering elective. I'm sitting in this class on MRIs, and a professor starts writing a bunch of stuff up on the board. I'm looking around, and I'm like, I have a minor in mathematics, and I don't even know what he's writing up there. And so I elbowed the the kid next to me. And these are all like, you know, majors in math, uh, PhDs in physics. I asked him, hey, man, do you know what's going on here? And he goes, no. And he's just frantically writing shit down. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. And then I knew I was hosed when like the second day, he's like, okay, now we're going to derive all the mathematical equations that are used in an MRI. And it turns out there was another math requirement that I didn't have for the class, which is why I didn't understand any, <laughs> any of the math. Mm. I'm like, oh, there's things called Bessel equations and stuff like past, like Calc 4. I didn't even know these things existed. <laughs> and at this point, I'm just thinking, I'm like, okay, this is kind of the point of no return. Like if I, some by some minor miracle, find a way to pass this class, then I have to finish this degree because I am not going back again. And I just kind of thought about it. And I just said, no, nah, I'm, I'm out. I just, you know, if this is what I really want to do, not really. Um, so I dropped out and went over to the physiology department and started that fall, which is even more interesting that once you're in a PhD program, you can actually transfer pretty easy. Um, but what most of you don't know, for me to get into that program took me a year and a half. And I applied, I was rejected applied again and I never heard anything back and so this went on for like eight months and so I'm like hey just tell me if I'm in or not and so eventually I got annoyed so I started showing up and said okay who's the guy who has to decide this oh it's on the department provost whatever whatever his desk great what are his office hours so I just started showing up at this guy's office hours which randomly he never was there one day he shows up he goes ah who are you I tell my name and he's like, I said, yeah, I applied for your program it was a year and a half ago. I heard you're the one reviewing my thing. I just need to know when you're going to look at it and give me a date. He's like, oh, I don't know where it is. It's probably lost somewhere. And this guy has his mountain, like you can barely see his head over like the piles of paper just <laughs> everywhere in his office. And for some reason, I was just feeling like a dickhead at this point. And so I point to this purple folder that's just buried in all these files. And I jokingly said, oh, maybe that's it. <laughs> And he pulls open the file and he goes, holy shit, it is. <laughs> is that real? Yeah. Well, he's looking that's at how you got it, in? And he's looking at it and he's going, I don't know, your GPA is pretty low. I'm like, dude, like I busted my ass for like a 3.5 GPA from like a legitimate like engineering school. And unfortunately, the guy who I took my GRE told me, he's like, oh, yeah, don't study for the GRE. Just walk in and take it. So me, like being an idiot, followed his advice, just walked in one day, took the GRE, 
And so my GRE was like the inverse of like every engineering person known to man. Like the, <laughs> the written and verbal were great. The math was like the lowest they had ever seen. Because I was trying to solve all the equations and you run out of time, right? The trick is just figure out which one it's not because it is multiple choice because you're penalized for if you don't answer questions. This, this is like the old version. And he's like, well, your GRE technically meets the criteria, but your math score is the lowest we've ever seen. <laughs> and so he's like, well, we'll admit you on probation. So I had to go get two letters of recommendation. And he's like, you were on probation for two quarters. And I was telling him like, hey, man, I've been taking classes for you know a year and a half. Like I have a 4.0 in every single class I've taken here at your institution. And he's like, I don't know. So long story short, I eventually got in which was great. And then once you're in, like transfer was, was like pretty easy. So there's always like some weird obstacles to like stuff. You think that like, I'm looking at my GPA. I'm like, Oh, I made all the requirements. This is easy. Eh, not, not so much. <laughs> Man, I'm still surprised that that's how you got in was you picked a random file. Like that's what's. <laughs> and the second that like... I said it, I was like, Oh my God, that's such a huge douchebag a-hole thing to say. But I was just so annoyed that I had spent so much time like on this. I just wanted an answer. Like I'm in or I'm out. Just just give me an answer so I can figure out, you know, what to do next. So it was, yeah, I was shocked. Like, He's like, oh, it is. <laughs> there's, you know, coming back to these commonalities. I mean, I know, you know, the, the, I've seen success in a few different industries, partially because I was always willing to just annoy the, the person that I wanted right. to be under. <laughs> like. The successful person that was, you know, that I was like, I'm just going to go annoy this person. I'm just going to be there. And then when the opportunity presents itself, it's like, fuck, let's just let it, let's just give him a shot. So he'll shut up, you know, (laughs) like, and Dean, I mean, Dean definitely like Dean just started showing up at stuff. Like Dean was just everywhere. I I think part of it is like, I just, I genuinely like the shit I'm there and like everyone, even with Mike, totally. Part of it is I didn't really know who Mike was at the time because I just I like came from the industry. I, I was a power lifter that was a teacher. And anyways, I was just like, he had a good presentation. I want to ask him this question. Everyone's like not asking you questions in the, the, the rest of the history. But I did that with everyone. It's like I showed up at Hype to work out with Pat because yeah. he was talking shit. But I'm like, I'll go lift with these guys. And most people are scared to do that. And I was just, I don't know. It's just, This is like any other business venture if you want to look at it. It's like these people... Or just normal people. I, yeah, normal. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about the industry outside of powerlifting. And I met Mike, and I just remember, like, we were like getting eating like barbecue, and just he starts talking about HRV, and I'm just like, because I knew a little bit about HRV, and all of a sudden he starts talking, and I'm like, holy shit, this guy knows more about HRV than anyone on the planet. <laughs> I was like, wow, and this is before anyone was real. I mean, it was kind of on the radar, but not yeah. really. And I was just like, oh my god, who is this guy? <laughs> Just, and then I think he presented like the next day, but I was just like, good God. But it was the same thing. It was like, you know, just, you know, just talking to people, asking people actually, because you know, actually Pete Dupuy had a great post the other day about like talking to some dude at a, a seminar and the guy asked him about his, what he does and because he had presented and he's talking about himself and, and, um, he just, it was just some guy, some guy named James. And he's like, I decided to look him up when I got home. And it was James Clear who ends up, you know, going oh, to nice. Atomic Habits. Yeah. He's like, I didn't even ask what he did, like a dummy. <laughs> he's like, but, you know, the, this guy's successful because what does he do? He goes and asks other people about what they do and how they got successful. And then he writes a book about how people got successful from doing the thing that they do. Yeah. And, but, uh, I mean, the trick is that everybody wants to talk about the thing they're interested in. 
Right. Absolutely. I luckily figured that out semi early on. I figured it out through an interview course. So I take a course when I was working at MedTech about how to interview people. And one of the things I realized was like, if you just ask them about what they're interested in, especially if they're really nervous, that they, they get much more relaxed. Mm-hmm. And especially working with academics, you know, eh, sometimes their presentation skills are not all the best or interpersonal skills. Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're not. But if you kind of stay in their wheelhouse and ask them stuff about, you know, ideally things that you're also interested in, they're like, wow, hey, that guy was pretty cool. Like you never really, he doesn't know anything about you, but because you were interested in him or her, they're like, oh, that's a great dude. It's like, he doesn't know anything about you, but you were interested in what they were presenting. So you're like, oh, it's great. <laughs> well, that's a good segue into kind of what we're doing. Not, not to say you're, you're a nerd who's bad at presenting and you have to ask questions <laughs> what you're interested in. But like, if we look at like your education background, it went to HRV and uh, Metflex. And I know we're here to talk about Metflex, but like, what about, because like you weren't necessarily interested in it and now it shaped everything you did. For oh, totally. Right. So like, where did like? Again, we're looking for background information on this stuff because it's kind of interesting to see how people got there because mentorship, like that process is probably helpful. But how did you start to develop, I guess, into what you're doing now based on where you came from? Because at that point, it was like the infancy of that stuff, right? And then now it's the centerpiece to what you're doing. So like, I don't know how to kind of walk people through that, but like, why? why, why are you doing it the way you're doing it? And how did that influence it? Yeah, it's fascinating that you look you look back at like certain things that just sort of happen and they almost all happen. Like what we talked about with people just putting themselves out there and doing stuff. Right. I remember getting an invite to the international society of sports nutrition in 2011 from Jose Antonio. I was a PhD student at the time. And he's like, Hey, I want you to come present on metabolic flexibility. I'm like, Oh, that's cool. And then I realized I'm like, Hey, um, do I get any money to do this? He's like, no. Like, do I have to buy my own airfare? Yeah. He's like, oh, just go get an industry sponsor. I'm like, uh. And I told him initially, I said, no, I can't do it, man. I just, I can't justify the funds expenditure for the presentation. And then I looked to see who else was presenting. I was like, oh, Lucifer is presenting. Oh, cool. I want to get an article by, like, one of the things that I had at the time is I want to be in men's health and have Lou Schuller edit one of my articles. So I called Joey back. I'm like, hey, man, uh, can I still do it? It's like, all right, cool. In my head, I'm thinking, oh, well, I'm presenting. So Lou is presenting. So we're like at the same level, right? Because we're both presenting. <laughs> and long story short, I ended up going there. I met Lou, got him to go to my presentation, got a feature on metabolic flexibility and the men's health issue is on the cover. And again, all things that just show up by being interested in, in the topic. So back to the PhD stuff. Same thing. Like I had been knew nothing about HRV other than some of the stuff Omega Wave had been doing. Didn't know anything about metabolic flexibility. I remember my co-advisor, the first time he explained it to me, I was like, that doesn't sound interesting. Like your body, you teach it to use fat and teach it to use carbs. Isn't that what it's supposed to do? Like, I don't know what we're looking at here. <laughs> the thing I kind of didn't understand is that, oh, that's a healthy person. When stuff isn't healthy, it goes sideways and it gives you a framework to look at things. And then previous to that, I had always been interested in variability and other forms of math beyond just the standard linear statistics, right? I'd always been interested in like, why is an outlier an outlier, right? So what's going on with them? 
And it so happened that the math lined up with it. So we used uh, variability analysis to look at metabolic flexibility. We used the same math from heart rate variability. So if you've read like uh, Range by David Epstein, can you take two disciplines and kind of do a Venn diagram and see where they overlap, right? Especially now, that's probably where more of the interesting things are. So we took the math from variability analysis from heart rate, and we applied it to the respiratory exchange ratio, the little marker that tells you how much fat versus how much carbs you're using. And we looked at not just the average, but a variability analysis of it. So my thesis was technically titled, you know, fine scale variability analysis across physiologic systems. And what we find is that if you look at the variability, so how much these little things move around, right? So you're at rest, your heart rate is not 70.000, it's 69.8, 71.2, 70.5. There's this little bit of variation. It turns out that little bit of variation is a marker for a healthy physiologic system. And to date, like all the systems we've looked at, um, heart rate, postural control, gait, uh, metabolic stuff, breathing, so far that principle has stayed true. So related to that, I'm super fascinated on what are the principles that govern physiology and do they govern other things? And it turns out that if you understand the main uh, principles, you can figure out a whole bunch of stuff. And to me, a principle should apply across multiple domains, right? So fine scale variability is a marker for health that should apply to heart rate. It should apply to gait, should apply to metabolism. It should apply to these other areas across uh, different systems. So that's kind of how I, I got into it. And at the time, like neither one of those things was like popular at all. I remember oh. the, the first call I had a marketing call with Ryan Lee, who I really like his stuff. Good buddy. I had done. Uh, just a short review on metabolic flexibility. And I stuck it out in my old blogger account. And I didn't really expect anyone to read it. But my thought was, I want a marker in time that I did this work. And here's what it was, not necessarily expecting anyone to understand it, right? So if it becomes popular in 10 years, I have a written record <laughs> of, you know, hey, I actually did this thing on this date. And it so happened that I had a call with Ryan on that exact day. You know, he being, a, you know, does his homework, goes to my blog account and he reads it. I get on the phone with him. He's like, hey, how's it going? Good. He's like, hey, what the F is this thing? Like, no one's going to fucking read any of this shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, good point. <laughs> they, they still don't, but they'll buy the products. Like, like yeah. even if you look at Omega Wave, like Omega Wave is like, it's awesome in like no one uses it. They'd rather just do whoop, but like right. now whoops, like I, I have tons of clients that are like, yeah, I have whoop and the strain and it's HRV and my Apple watch says this, but like no one actually wants to go read the, the article on what HRV is like, yeah. it's, 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 it's like you said, math. <laughs> and, and that's the hard part too, right? Because everybody wants the answer, right? So obviously I have a course on heart rate variability too. And people are like, well, I got a green, so I'm good, right? I'm like, eh, it's just showing you a marker of stress, right? I can redline my, my car and get to the grocery store faster. Does that mean it's good to redline my car every day because I got a higher level of performance? Meh, probably not, right? So it's, again, looking at context, looking at the big picture, um, but also figuring out what are specific action items to do. 
when I set up the flex diet shirt, the cert, seamless promotion, the three things I had in my head that I had to solve was how do I educate people on the big picture, right? So they have context, right? Our buddy, Dr. Ben House has talked a lot about that. Um, two, how do I give them technical information that's not eight hours, right? Because the reality mm-hmm. was it would be way easier for me to do an eight-hour lecture on all things about protein than it would be a 45-minute lecture on most things a trainer needs to know about protein, right? The condensed version is much more difficult to do to make it actually accurate. However, to the end user, it's a lot more valuable, right? Because, oh, I can get most of what I need to know in an hour. Okay, that's that's useful. And then how do I add specific action items, but still in a flexible framework? Because it's as you guys know, like protein's a little bit easier, but you start getting to like carbohydrates. People are like, oh, what's the magical equation to tell you how many carbohydrates to eat? I don't know. Like, I don't think anybody knows, right? It's there's just too much variability. But we can give you a system where you can figure out how to do it. So how do I give people specific action items? Because what I realized looking at other certifications, if you did really good on the context part, right? So some people have good research reviews. Yeah. The application was was horrible. And you've got the other yeah. line. You've got the Instagram fitness influencer who's like, I have your magical equation for carbohydrates, which is complete bullshit, not based on anything. So how do you kind of get it in the middle road where you have a big picture, you have technical information, and then you have specific action items so that the client and the person actually does the thing that you want them to do. That's where like, even if you like, cause if you look at your cert and kind of what you do with the action items, like there, there, there's a bunch of them and then there's science behind it. But when you look at, like you said, Instagram versus a lot of the information on those spectrums, the Instagram people will give you the fucking action item. It's right. probably not rooted in any science, but they get people to do it. And so it's like, yeah. as fitness professionals, like how do we get them to do good stuff? Not right. <laughs> whatever the fuck that they're doing. You know what I mean? Not and that's where it's, is that, well, wait, I is think, that, yeah. I was gonna say, yeah. I think that is the kind of the lesson here in, in, in your, we've got Ben is Ben's doing a, a content piece, kind of what we talk about, but, but I think that's the lesson here is, is, um, everyone that's in this program is going to be on a spectrum, right? Some are, so we're going to have people that are, are in here that are PhDs or that are PhD candidates that, that are going to be great researchers. We're going to have other people who are going to be like, Hey, you know, this is not my milieu, but like I can learn to read, at least understand the research and, and disseminate the things that you're putting out or that that are coming from the research. And how do we bring that down to a gen pop level? And I think that's such a good lesson there is like, yeah, the eight hours worth of content is where, where the magic is, but yeah, that's hard to sell to Karen and Chad. So how do we break that down? And I think that's kind of the, well, and the how did you break process. that? Because that's actually like a good lead into kind of what I was thinking was that like, we both know you have thousands of studies. Okay. And then like in your, in your Rolodex <laughs> and, like, and I know you try to memorize them, even though we can't find the postal study. Um, I, I'm going to bring that up as a joke because like no one can find it. Um, but like, if I look even at, we'll, we'll just use protein. For example, I think there's like, like you, you kind of layered it, narrowed it down to like 10 studies. Like, how do you go through that process to figure out what is important, I guess, to the coach and then for them to get to the end user. Cause you could have picked, million studies and now you've, you've, you've narrowed it down. Like what goes to your head with that just from your background? 
Yeah, so for me, the pain in the ass factor, although I like doing it, but it's a monster pain in the ass, is going through a lot of the research to make sure what I'm actually saying is accurate, right? Because no one's going to sit down and read, you know, 50 studies on protein or whatever the number is, is way more than that. Um, but what is the consensus for it? Right. And yeah. some people will, will look at a meta-analysis or look at a position stand and those are all great. Um, but you know, for what individuals, what population, and then you're looking for what are the commonalities and where are they different? Right. So for protein and a simple example is a lot of the studies that are done are done on young college people because they're easy to get into studies. Shit, mm-hmm. half of them are probably grad students in the department, so they're okay with getting, you know, <laughs> weird exercise, eccentrics and muscle biopsies and tissue taken out and all Oof. this kind of invasive stuff. Um, but if you're dealing with a client who's 75 years old, right, do those studies from those young people still apply to somebody who's older? And if you've only read the studies on the younger college people and you're like, I have all the randomized controlled trials, ah, ha, ha. And then you find one that looks at an older population and finds that protein may actually be higher, right? 20 grams away to get an acute response may not be enough. We need 40 grams. Oh, okay. That doesn't now fit your paradigm of like, all you need is this X amount of protein. So in my brain, I'm trying to figure out what is the simplest way I can keep the message, but yet still make it accurate. And in what cases do I need to deviate a little bit from that? In the case of protein, if you're younger, you can probably get by with a little bit less protein. If you're older, most of the data shows and supports that you actually need more protein, especially at uh, an acute feeding. So that's not quite a simple response of, oh, just have 20 grams per meal, right? Now, when you're giving other recommendations, do they account for all of that? Do they account for different types of protein? So maybe I'm using a rice protein as a supplement or I'm on a vegan diet. So one of the things I had in there was a four by 40 approach. So get four Mm -hmm. meals, get 40 grams of protein at each meal. And how I got that was that pretty much covers almost all your cases. If you're using rice protein as your main protein, there's a study uh, done by Jordan Joyce showed in that 40 grams of protein is going to be enough to get a response by using rice protein, a plant protein. Um, If you're using older adults, right? So Yang did a study, average age was 71. Ah, 40 grams of protein is enough to see an acute bump in uh, protein synthetic response. So that approach, while it's on the lower end of total protein, is going to cover, you know, most people pretty good. So that's kind of a simple action item that you can take out from all the very, very complicated uh, research. I think that actually that, that four by 40 approach is one of the things and it's, it, it seems so like kind of simple and almost like a little bit of a throwaway thing. But when I, when you first mentioned that or, or spoke about it, it really resonated with me in a, in a way different than, than just this idea of like four boluses of 40 grams of protein. It helped me think categorically and a little more critically about other things because what it did was instead of just, um, when I looked at protein, it was like, okay, you know, we could say gram per pound of body weight right now in essence, most guys are going to be like somewhere between like five, seven and five, 10, you know, probably, uh, you know, holding around 160 pounds of, you know, 
mass at best, right? So like, even if they're 200 pounds, like how much lean mass do they have? So we're probably covering our bases there by doing that. If it's high, probably no harm there. If it's a little bit low, also probably no harm. And we're talking about most people are looking for performance or health or, and so it was like one of these things that was just a simple like equation of like, Hey, four by 40, but it, it actually made me think about the idea of protein synthesis in such a different way, um, which I think translated into my thought process and a lot of other things. Like, How can we simplify things for the end yeah. user while still covering all of our bases? Well, not being like crazy about it. Cause like for a yeah, while exactly. there was like, it was like muscle protein synthesis. We need to hit it all the time. And, and then you're like, like, I think the action item is called simpleton or whatever. And, and in your, in your cert, and it was like, mm-hmm. the, who cares? Just hit 40 grams of protein this many times a day and you're covered. Like everything's covered. There's actually like no minutia here. You could try to be minute, but like that would, it probably would be the same thing. Yeah. The, the, (laughs) the, the, the percent of, of difference would be, you know, non, 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 it would be such a non-starter that, that, the extra effort of trying to be perfect with it wouldn't actually pay off even even that part of it so like we talked about this not relevant to the well it kind of is because we we presented for compound yesterday and we're talking about protein shakes after workouts and i'm like i'm gonna do it no matter what but after you kind of look at like you said the research and even if you go through your course it's like it doesn't matter If, if you had like 40 grams of protein or 30 grams of protein like within three hours like you're you're more than likely fine like whoever was telling you that stuff was probably didn't actually read the research. Well, and, maybe yeah, it was, I mean, yeah. the research, the, the, the protein timing research, I mean, there was people that spent their entire careers on it. And then, you oh, know, yeah. I mean, I think even Ben, it wasn't Ben's PhD in like protein I think timing. And I think it was nutrient timing. Nutrient but, yeah. timing. But he was like, he was like, basically afterwards, he was like, oh, that was a big letdown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the nutrient timing depends too. Like Ivy stuff was all extrapolated into protein and Ivy's work, John Ivy's stuff was all on carbohydrates. And when you extrapolate it into protein, it was real split, right? You look at Paul Cribb stuff, like one of the earliest studies done on uh, protein, carbohydrates, and creatine. Awesome study, like high-level bodybuilders, DEXA, macros were all the same. They just moved that uh, pre and post shake to AM and PM. And what they saw was like a pretty damn big difference. And you've got other groups that uh, Jay Hoffman's group tried to replicate the study. They got a different result. The study was a little bit different. So you're left with like 50-50, might help, might not. And I remember at ISSN uh, talking to Paul Cribb, who's awesome, he's from Australia. And I asked him, I said, hey, man, I said, you did the study. Everything, everything looks good. But we've got these other studies that kind of disagree. And obviously, this is your main research. You did your PhD in this field. Like, if you were to speculate, like, what do you think is going on? Like, why do you see some benefit and others don't? And he looks at me and he goes, I don't know, mate. I have no idea. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, so even the people who did the studies, like the result is still the result, right? There's no reason right. to say the study was bad. They're not even sure, right? And these are the people who've dedicated, you know, multiple years of their life to try to figure this out. Um, so it gets super far down in the weeds, too. Well, and it was a great when 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 Dean and I did this course, we did this writing course where uh, it was like all like like PhDs, like people who'd been studying things yeah. for like 70 years. It was crazy. But <laughs> someone des- described like these, these people who had been researching this, like, I mean, this one guy was researching and we still can't figure bananas. out if he was talking it was about bananas? It was, bananas, but it was, it was a ginger. 
ginger, a ginger yeah. is related to banana. And I don't know if he meant like ginger, like the root. <laughs> we still don't know. But this guy was like, you know, someone talks about like going out the branches where you're like, this is the tree. And they've gone so far down the branches that they're on the tip of this leaf. And they yeah. have no idea what the roots even look like anymore. And like, like, this guy was like, He's like, and he's make- like, he's yelling at people because people don't, and we don't even know what he's talking about. And we're like, <laughs> the whole I don't point even was know. The distill, they're supposed to distill the message into like one sentence, and he's like, the, he kept going. He's like, no, one sentence. He's like, yeah, but, 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 yeah, and, but. and then we're like, what? I, I think he doesn't know what he's. Like, he knows what he's talking about, but like, no one cares. And it kind of got to that point. Then he was like, why should people care? He's like, well, because it's a banana. It's ginger. And like, well, and yeah, we still. And I mean, he was like, this guy's like seventy five years old. He'd been researching this stuff for like fifty five years. Like, you know, you're just like. But again, it's that level. thing of like you get so far down that path mm-hmm. that you don't even realize what it is that the actual problem trying to solve is and so it's like hey if we forget about that then it doesn't really matter um yeah and, and I'll in just academics say, yeah. that path is highly rewarded right yeah. that's the part that yeah. people forget like all your incentives are for you to be the man or the woman onto this particular yeah. thing and the more niche it is probably the better in general Right, because anything you do starts to become novel. It's easier to publish stuff that's novel. Yeah. Journals want it. It's a little bit more sexy, and you know you're the person for this particular thing. But then you get out in the real world, or you have an application that has to be tied to it. You're like, uh, I don't know. Like, I my goal. What well, I'm I'm not thinking about application. That's just not in my wheelhouse. I'm rewarded for this next study on this next you know whiz bang little thing, just looking smaller and smaller and smaller. And it, it's hard to pull yourself back from that when that's been your, your whole career that you've been rewarded for, too. Well, and so how do you go? Because like, this is actually that's a great segue. And that wasn't even planned. But like, <laughs> so you, your core and this is physiological flexibility, too. It's it's structured in a way to, like, I guess, have strength of application. Like, what goes into your thought process of how you structured it? Because, like, even if I look base level, there's, like, protein, and then you do fat as fuel and micronutrients, and then you kind of go down the ladder. Like, when you're looking at it from your background, like, how did you go about trying to not be a weird banana ginger dude who's down the rabbit hole (laughs) of another black hole in a rabbit hole in the black hole to, to this application side? Because I think, like, even if we look at, we give coaches that are going to be doing this stuff, how do they kind of know do what they know and learn what they learned to then get to that if they weren't going to take your course like what's your thought process and how you scaffolded that yeah a couple of things one of the big things i thought was what is the end goal like so if my goal is to help more people in general which again very vague statement but help them with nutrition and recovery great okay so i can work one-on-one with clients but if i work with coaches that gives me a little bit more leverage, right? The coach can then help more people. So you get an exponential mm-hmm. thing from there. Um, if the coach just acquires all the information, is that good enough? Not really, because I don't know how they're applying it. Right? So the old saying of, you know, knowledge is not key, applied knowledge is key. So how do I give them the knowledge and how do I make sure that it's applied? And that's where I realized that uh, some other places kind of, I think, dropped the ball by not making it specific enough. And trainers would get hung up on, Oh yeah, the protein lecture was great. Okay. Yeah. You know, one gram per pound of body weight. Okay. Maybe that's useful. Well, what exactly do I do with that and how do I scale it? All right. So like the four by 40 approach, 
the scaling is easy because the point to scale, so you can either scale the number of meals or you can scale the protein amount. And you can really go either way. The person's going to end up being better, which is fine. But if you had a choice, I would leave the amount higher and then scale the number of meals. So that way I know that they're getting the physiologic response that I want. And we're just scaling that up over time. So one of the things I had to try to figure out was how do I make it scalable? Because not everyone's going to come in and be like, like the bowling analogy, right? Of, okay, most nutrition coaching is I give you exact macros that I've, I don't know, pulled out of my ass basically, but these are your exact macros. And if you don't make it, I'm just going to be more hardcore and have you do more compliance and all this stuff. It's like going to the bowling alley and like just bowl strikes, right? I'm your coach. Your job is just to bowl strikes all the time. It's like, eh, maybe we put little bumpers in the side. So your whole goal is to weave around and just knock some pins down, right? My job as a coach is to keep you in this lane that you don't end up like, you know, four lanes down, you know, throwing, you know, whatever down the alley, right? Because that's where most people end up by themselves. But I realized if you, again, eliminate that fine skill variability, that skill set of them learning to weave within a certain pattern, you're expecting them to bowl strikes all the time, which is just not realistic. And then when you release them in the real world, it's just a freaking disaster, right? So again, let them make mistakes, but still have them make progress because that's the real world. So if I go back to how do you scale that? So what are the things that I want to scale in terms of action items? And then if I go up one level from that, like how did I get to those action items? Like we talked about reading a lot of the literature, talking to coaches, trying stuff on my own, screwing up my own clients, which, uh, sorry, clients. <laughs> um, it's gotten better over it. time. <laughs> and then once I think I have something, so let's say a four by 40 approach, then I do all sorts of weird stuff to try to disprove that thing, right? So I'll you know do a bunch of breathing stuff in a float tank for hours on end. And my whole goal is just to think about how can I disprove that thing, right? So protein timing. Oh, okay. What, what if protein timing is a thing? Half the studies say it is. Okay. If that's true, does a four by 40 approach cover it? Well, kind of, you're eating four meals. So by definition, one of those is going to be free. One of those is going to be post. It's going to be a close enough time period. You're okay. Okay. What about older athletes? Okay. 40 grams enough. Uh, that's enough. What about younger athletes? 40 grams is enough. You know, so I tried to run all these different scenarios and over time, if I could not disprove the thing, then, okay, that kind of made the cut. That's probably something to go forward with where the inverse doesn't work, but makes your ego feel better, right? If you just keep looking for all of the data, right? You're trying to, you know, looking for all the white swans when you're trying to find the black swans, then you feel good and you've done a lot of effort. But you could very well have ended up with something that most of the data agrees, but can be invalidated by a single data point. So try to come up with your own hypothesis, play with it in clients, and then spend a bunch of time trying to disprove it. If you're not able to disprove it, then it, you're probably on the right track. So that thing makes the cut, and then you just kind of move on to the next items. Yeah, that I think finding the negatives in what we do has been the biggest benefit in terms of coaching mm -hmm. is like, because there's going to be, and, and like, you know, looking at it, you know, we, we talk about something like, what are, what are the downsides? And there's going to be some downsides, right? But if sure. the downsides are outweighed by the, the positives and it's like, all right, cool. Then I'm still good with this. Like I'm okay with it. 
It's when those downsides you start to go. And and again, you know, we talk about like you know, depending on the scale and the clients you're working with, things such as you know macros. Like for some people, macros are a great option. For some sure. people, the downsides far outweigh the the positives. And you're like, definitely okay, not knowing that um, or ignoring that. I think is is a big is a big issue right now. Yeah, and that's why when I I did the flex diet cert, I made a conscious effort to not use macros. Right? Mm-hmm. People yeah. are like, oh. Oh my God. Well, how do you do it? And you're like, you're saying you never use macros with your clients. Like, no, I have some clients that we, we use client macros a fair amount, but they're also pretty advanced. I know what we're trying to accomplish with that too. I think if you go to a general population or even some elite level athletes, right? Some are good with counting. Some are horrible, right? And mm-hmm. the handful of elite athletes I've worked with, their nutrition is a, just a trash bin fire. It's bad. <laughs> right? I'm like, if you just got them to eat more protein and some micronutrients, just do like two out of the eight interventions, like the times that that's actually been done, they're like, holy crap, this is amazing, right? So you don't need a super advanced approach all the time either. And I think in fitness, like counting macros is held up as a super advanced approach. And again, there's a time and a place for that. Um, But thinking that that's the only way to help most people, I I just find that it backfires more often than it's useful. Mm-hmm. And that's why we we like brought you on, but like we we brought a bunch of people on to do stuff differently, partially because like everyone thinks, like you said, that macros is the super advanced right. approach. <laughs> it's actually it might actually be the simplest and least effective depending on who it is, and it right. might be the most effective. If you have a if you have a professional bowler and their bowling strikes, like you, the macros works really great. Like those are the outliers that we get, but like they don't need bumpers. But right, like a lot of time, and it, so, anyways, it's interesting because even if you look at how you scaffolded it, if I remember correctly, and I, I, I've, I've probably taken an older iteration of it, but you give people choices too, right? Mm-hmm. Like in terms of action steps, like with any of the things that you do, like how did you kind of come up with that? Because essentially, you're giving people ownership of it, but like, where, where was your thought process in terms of that element of your cert? I guess. Yeah, because I still wanted, like using the bullet analogy, I still wanted a flexible approach, right? So going back to even protein, right? it'd be very easy for me to say, okay, here's your action for protein. Eat, you know, 0.7 grams of protein per pound of body weight because I can show you all this, you know, shit ton of literature that says that's the number. Uh, if I want to scale up to, you know, one gram, you know, per pound of body weight to cover the 99th percentile of bodybuilders and everybody else, great. But... I don't know if one that's novel, most people know that too. Most people are not doing that. So where's the breakdown for there? And in all defense, like one of the five action items is, Hey, if you like math and you want to be a very analytical approach, you know, minimum 0.7 to one that works right. For other people that want a more simple approach, maybe just getting 30 to 40 grams of protein at breakfast is an approach or use a four by 40 approach or four by 30. If you're a smaller mammal, Right. I wanted options. And then I set it up in a way that the client is the one who actually picks the option. Because the reality is, if I have five options for protein, I don't give a shit which of those five you use. They're all set up to get you to the goal that you are wanting to get to. So they will all work. But the psychology is that they may not work for you. So I made this sort of more heavy on the physiology, but I baked all of the psychology like into the system. So you would present the client with, you know, as a coach, you're like, I think option one and three are the best. 
So you present those options to the client and then you just have them rank using motivational interviewing, one to 10, right? One being, oh, this is like the worst thing ever. I'd rather be chased through the woods by a oiled up grizzly bear with lasers and razor blades to like 10 being, oh, this is like so easy. Like I could have done this yesterday, right? And you're looking for the things that have at least an eight or nine or a 10. So you're allowing yourself to literally rig the system in the client's favor, which it seems to be like the simple thing to do is to use their current psychology to their advantage. And then, yeah, you can make changes to it over time. But what we tend to do is we tend to make things like super hard. Hey, you got to both strikes all the time. Here's your perfect macros. Oh, you didn't hit your perfect macros. I just yell at you more. You need to check in more often and log harder, try harder, right? It's like, why don't we just set it up in a way that we're, we're getting the result we want. We're getting them to do the right things, but we're going to rig the system in the client's favor to make it easier for them. Isn't that like the whole <laughs> the whole goal of like coaching? <laughs> well, like the rig we the system. Leases- Lisa's doing a, a segment on here. Lisa Lewis, awesome. obviously, you know, and yeah. hers, hers on motivation. Um, and, and like literally what you just described is the basis of self-determination theory of autonomy, competence, right. and then the relatedness of, of being with the coach. So it's like literally giving them things that they can do well, giving them autonomy of making the choice. And yep. then obviously the, the community of, of you being within that. So like it's, it's, it, I mean, it, it, and that's why I, it's like so funny because people people probably zero in on the metabolic piece of this. Yeah. I always zero in on the flexibility because yeah. that's where the magic really is. It's like the and that's why I love that you're doing the physiological and you talk about psychological flexibility um, because again, as you kind of branch into more of these things, you start to see that hey, people can be successful across a spectrum by applying this principle all around. Even with the psychological. Yeah, and like the same thing, like you're setting the people up to have the skills that you want once they're done with you, right? Mm -hmm. So, I I mean, I made this mistake when I started. I'm like, oh, meal plans are the thing. These people just don't know what to do. So I spent hours like, you know, using expensive software or books to make sure they had all the micronutrients and writing this all down and presenting it to them for, you know, way too cheap of a price. And, and thinking that I solved all their issues and then did that for a year and beat my head against the wall going, why don't these people do anything? You know? And mm-hmm. so then I go down the whole rabbit hole of, you know, I didn't go psychology. I did neurobiology. Cause I'm like, well, how does their brain work? Like, what does it think about? How does it make decisions? Cause mm-hmm. like, you know, one of the early clients I had, I kept berating him about eating sleeves of Oreos every day and he kept eating more Oreos. I'm going, what is going on? He agrees with me. He knows this isn't the best path, but yet he's eating more of them. And then I realized I'm like, oh shit. Like if I say pink elephant, right? Don't think of a pink elephant, Jeb. Yeah. You just thought of a pink elephant. You know stay you weren't puff, supposed stay to puff think marshmallow, of a pink man. elephant. Right. But <laughs> your brain is it's hardwired unconsciously to process things visually. It's just kind of one of the tenets of how your brain works. Because it's a great way to store information. Right. So if I asked you, if you were not at home, like how tall are the windows in your living room? You could figure it out, but you picture yourself standing in your living room and look at the windows in relation to other things. You're not a computer mm-hmm. that says, oh, it's 11.7 you know, inches off the ground, the main window, whatever. So visually is a very efficient way to work. But when you're berating your clients, you're just giving them this visual picture all the time. 
And so once I switched and said, okay, I don't care how many Oreos you eat, you just have to eat 40 grams of protein before you eat any Oreos. And what we're going to measure is, yeah, we'll still measure how many Oreos you eat, but your number one action item is to eat more protein. And so we're going to give you education and skill set on that. And that's something that they can then carry forward. Um, so again, you're not saying Oreos are bad, never eat them, because that doesn't work either, Mm-mm. right? You're, people are well-intentioned by saying that, but again, you're giving them a visual cue of Oreos all the time. So they eat a few Oreos, now they feel horrible about it, and then that goes down a whole other path. I was going to say, I would take it a step further. Like Jeff and I talk about like the, the walking thing, but like I almost like have given up on the fact that the pink elephant's always going to be there. And if it's not from you, it's going to be on Instagram or, or, oh, like, they, they literally, or like on every street corner or every fast. Like there's so many food cues that I'm like, I, I don't even yes. think I can win this battle anymore unless we took you out of the, your environment, like which, what Ben does. And we're going to go stay in Costa Rica in the jungle and I'm going to feed you like that. That's not realistic. And so it's like, I've taken your cues on a lot of this stuff and kind of layered it into what I do. Not that I'm giving up, but it's that people are exposed to this stuff. And again, Oreos, yeah, they're bad. Now they think of Oreos. It's like, so what can you do that has nothing to do with Oreos? And it probably will help because they might just eat Oreos anyways. And that guy probably still eats Oreos. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there is a way out of that loop though, which is, I I agree a hundred percent with you. And that's one question that's just bugged the crap out of me, especially going forward with, you know, targeting through Facebook, Instagram, like marketing is going to have so much data coming forward. That's going to be completely personalized on you. If you're using those platforms that your amygdala, the hardwired, you know, lizard part of your brain, they're going to get really good at figuring out what you want, right? Cause we're hardwired to have, you know, a certain amount of calories, the faster we can get calories, et cetera, things that are tastier. So I think the way out is to use, your prefrontal cortex, right? The newer part of your brain, the thinky part of your brain to override your limbic sort of lizard brain. And that that can actually be trained, right? So in the physiologic flexibility cert, one of the things I like is cold water exposure. So during COVID, I I put up a 15.6 gallon freezer, filled it full of cold water. And I did the experiment of, you know, getting it in every day, six to seven uh, days a week for, uh, well over a year and a half. And my thought process was, you know, physiologic stuff aside that I'm training myself to do something hard that I can do every day. Right? There's only so much hard exercise you can do and other things that are beneficial. And my thought was, okay, so definitely after a few months, this is going to get pretty easy. And the funny part was after a year and a half, like the second before you get in, I was never once like, oh yeah, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> You're like, damn it, this is going to suck. But I know I'm going to feel better after I'm doing the right thing. It's going to be a positive, right? So you rationalize your way through it and you still do the thing. So I think the way out is setting things up so that you have to train your prefrontal cortex to override that little lizard part of your brain and developing that as a skill set that I don't think you'll ever get to the point where it won't take a little bit of rationalization, but it'll take a lot less over time. And I think that's the only way out of that loop going forward. Well, theoretically, then that kind of falls in with the mindfulness piece is because it does reorganize the prefrontal cortex. So basically what you're saying, though, with the cold water therapy is lizard or liver king is right. 
Yeah, you, yeah I don't know, Mike, who sent me you, that I, thing you, the other day? You found the Liver King, right? You've got Somebody it. Somebody sent even, it to me, and I was like, Mike even found it, which is, I, I think I have to stop this for a second. Mike doesn't know anything on Instagram. He kind of shows up for a week, does a few things. <laughs> right. And like, even Mike knows what the Liver King is. This Did is you awesome. send it to me? You, Somebody sent it to I me. Think, That's the only reason I know. I might have. I might have. I just, you. I just, I tagged Tommy because he was the first person I know that liked it, and I was like, of course, Carnivore Tommy yeah. is, is down with Liver King. <laughs> uh. Well, it, it, it actually, but his whole thing is like do hard things that like, and it's like so. I mean, like, and he's not he does wrong. Cold water. He does cold water. <laughs> he does the cold reason water. why I was actually gonna like try to like come, like get this to your psychological um, psychological fix, but I, I the other the other flexibility part of it. So we're talking about leverage point with people, and sometimes foods just not it. Do you think right. like getting them to do some of the psychological flexibility pieces is almost an inroad to the other thing? And yes. I, I look at people like doing um, Wim Hof. They're like, oh, my life is shit, and yada yada yada. Yad. I found Wim Hof, and now my life has changed. And then they did the other thing. So is that like a piece that maybe we're ignoring as nutrition coaches that might be an inroad to the other stuff without even trying? Yeah, it's just me. You're constantly looking for what are the leverage what are the leverage points, and how can I rig the system in your clients in the client's favor, right? I mean, I've set people up on I, I did this with myself with aerobic stuff. Okay, my goal is I'm gonna do one minute on the rower every morning six days a week. When I started like three years ago, when I had a rower in my garage, I wasn't going anywhere, I wasn't traveling, and people are like, oh. Well, what's the physiologic significance of one minute? Like, no matter how hard you go, you're not going to see a huge benefit. I don't give a shit about that. I just need mm-hmm. to get my ass out of bed. And one minute was so short, I couldn't rationalize my way out of it. Right? Oh, yeah. bro, I don't have time. I can't do it. The rower's in my damn garage. I open the door. I'm not doing a warm-up. I'm not going all out. I'm going, you know, 70 80%. The key was to make it so easy, I could not talk my way out of it. And so I think with like physiologic flexibility, I was looking at what are the uh, hormatic or not really hormatic, but what are the physiologic homeostatic regulators in your body, right? So your body has to maintain temperature, has to maintain pH, has to maintain Uh oxygen, carbon dioxide. To me, those are the leverage points because those things are hardwired into your system. Your body absolutely 110% has to hold those things constant. However, we know that they're plastic, they're trainable. You can get better at uh, heat, you can get better at a sauna, you can get better at a cold. So we know there's an adaptation period around it. And if we fast forward through time, what happens, right? So my grandma passed away about a year and a half ago, but when we would visit her, she was 101, it was freaking like 75 degrees in there. And you go through you know, the nursing home and everyone's freezing. They have like Afghans and stuff on. Like they are losing the ability to regulate their own temperature, right? And you see the same thing happen with, you know, with pH, O2, CO2, et cetera. So to me, then, if I want to make you better as an organism, I want to target things that are going to have a physiologic response. And then I'm going to do something that's probably going to be so short, you can't really talk your way out of it. Right? So in the physiologic flexibility cert, the, one of the things is just take a cold shower. And it literally mm-hmm. started like 10 seconds. Like, yeah, you're probably not going to see a huge physiologic benefit from it, but you're already in the shower. You're already wet. All you have to do is turn it to cold and just sit there for 10 seconds, right? It's, it's so short that it's hard to talk yourself out of it. And I think once you get better, again, at running that prefrontal cortex of making that decision and overriding the limbic system, 
the hopefully is that and what I've seen is that that is a positive transfer to other aspects of your life. Oh, okay. Like you were talking about mindfulness. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe I don't want the birthday cake and I'm okay with not eating it. Right. I'm not going to spend the next four hours lamenting about how I didn't have birthday cake. Right. I just, I made a decision that eh, I'm going to pass it for now and I'm okay. Right. I think that that will transfer to other areas, but in fitness in general, we, we tend to think about, oh, it's just all exercise. It's all food. And you have to go harder down this path, even though it's clearly not working for you. It's like, when did like try harder ever solve anything? Like never. It's like, yeah, you have mm-hmm. to do effort. You have to do work. But once you're doing that, is just trying harder going to solve everything? Yeah, no. <laughs> but the cool thing is, is you're kind of backdooring into trying harder. Yeah. Yeah, because you're exactly you're doing something hard that has nothing to do with this thing, but the skills transfer, and so then you're be better adaptable to do something that seems hard. Right. That's why I asked because so it's like the upward sweet. spiral, not the downward. It's the upward ascent, yeah, not the downward yeah. spiral. It's additive well, versus re- re- reduction. Like it's right. great, well, and that's why I asked because like if we look at like we're deeming it the coaching strategy spectrum i don't we, we call it anyway long story short is everyone kind of fits on their like if we look at macros here and we'll just say full-on crazy intuitive eating not like intuitive eating <laughs> but like like i'm you're full-on intuitive and that's the crazy side is like where do you fall and you kind of use all of it as so i don't know if you would fall in the middle i don't know what part you would classify yourself as but some of it has nothing to do with food Right. And we're talking about food, which is like what I want a lot of people to realize is there's other ways to do this that don't have to do with your protein timing, but it might yeah, all exactly. end up at protein timing eventually. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because if we look at what we've been told, it, it is mac- like, and I'm, I'm using macros, but macros is the strongest message, mm-hmm. right? Like cognitive oversight to the max is the one that's kind of every, everyone gets it. Calorie deficit, yada, yada, yada. But like no one actually looks at like maybe there's a better way to get, get a calorie deficit that has nothing to do with being crazy about food. Yeah. It and might just be a cold water tank. What's even more interesting is there's a whole bunch of cross adaptations that we don't understand yet. So one of the ones that was very clear in the literature was uh, they took people, they gave them one exposure to cold water immersion. The other group, they did not. And they took both those groups um, like 10 minutes after and they put them in a very hypoxic environment. So they put them in an environment with very low O2. And then they rated how hard that felt. Right? Because if you remove oxygen, woo, doesn't feel very good. It's a very stressful mm-hmm. stimulus. What they found was the group that had the cold water immersion reported that the hypoxic environment was not nearly as hard as the other group. And you're thinking, what the hell are you talking about? Like you're talking about cold water immersion had a positive transfer to hypoxia. And in the study, it did. There's a couple of studies that have replicated that. So Hmm. cold water immersion is somehow triggering via different molecular factors um, how your body is potentially using oxygen or CO2 or at least its perception of it. And I think if you're targeting the homeostatic regulators, there's so many cross adaptations yet that we don't quite understand. Right. So cold water example, I got in a cold water tank. At, I think it was like 43 degrees for five minutes. I measured my blood glucose, like literally before just stepping in the tank. I think it was like 87 or 91, somewhere around there. And as I got out, it was 53. It just, just dropped. And I've done that a couple mm. of times. So I think there's metabolic adaptations that are going on that we don't have a very good handle on. 
Um, but in theory, maybe you're better able to regulate these uh, spikes in blood glucose, right? We know that highly variable blood glucose is one of the triggers for hunger, not the only one, but one of them. Mm -hmm. So maybe over time, by you getting into cold water immersion, we're backdooring your body's ability to get better at blood glucose management, therefore making your you know hunger a little bit more even, therefore making it actually easier for you to make better decisions with nutrition, right? So to me, that's the the fascinating area. Now again, those are all hypotheticals and you know several steps removed, but I think as you get better as an organism. Right. Maybe you're doing fasted cardio, low intensity, high aerobic type stuff. In theory, that should increase your body's ability to use fat. And what I've noticed in clients is then for them to do a longer period of fasting is easier than other clients. Mm -hmm. So, again, it doesn't magically solve all your issue, but you're adding a capacity in so that if you purposely take a period of time and restrict calories, it's easier and you don't have to white knuckle your way through it. So I like trying to look at the organism itself. And if psychologically you can't go this direction, can I get it somewhere else by maybe a couple other mechanisms that I'm still training the thing I want just a little bit more indirectly, but as a person, as an organism, you're still getting better and you're still moving in the right direction. It's just a little bit more kind of indirect and detoured. And this is more of a models question, because I know you've kind of been on the psychological, like you kind of have transferred into this element as well. If you combine both of them, like where are your higher, I don't want to say higher leverage points, but has your, I guess, first line of interventions changed since doing Metflex, if that makes sense? Because with Metflex, yeah, yeah. it's like you, you talk about fasting almost like the second, yeah. if you go on rungs, it's like, protein, fat, like fats and fasting and the neat exercise, yada, yada, yada. Has it changed now with your deep dive into, I guess we'll call the homeostatic stuff, the psychological stuff? Yeah, it actually hasn't. I would say in how it's organized, it hasn't. But I would say on a per client basis, after doing more of the physiologic flexibility stuff, I actually think for a lot of clients that has a higher leverage. Meaning I want you to just take 10 seconds and do a cold shower, or I want you to do 30 seconds of a breathing technique or a breath hold or a super ventilation. It's almost easier to add those things in. And I think the payoff is pretty high for the time that's invested too. And the other part is whenever they get stuck in one area, I'm going to go to the opposite area. Right. So if they get stuck at just eating more micronutrition, okay. Yeah. You can work on habits. You can work on buying the food and, you know, making a veggie shake and other things like that. But I may table that and then I may add something else in a completely different direction. And then I may circle back to that at some point. Right. Because to me, I have these lists of, you know, eight interventions in each, 16 interventions overall. So I have a wide area that I can pick from. And I'm still making them better. I'm still getting them to their end result, just a little bit more of a circuitous path. Because again, my bias is that I explained this to a client once that, uh, so testing and assessment, you're looking for the things they're really good at and the things they're really bad at. But that same thing can apply to them as an actual organism, right? So if you're super strong and you've got the VO2 max of a field mouse, running marathons probably won't be super fun for you, right? Mm -hmm. But we can train your aerobic system. We can get you better at that, right? So highly advanced athletes are kind of asymmetric to begin with, and that's kind of their sport. 
most people, I think, if you look at the qualities, you want to be a little bit more kind of symmetric. So I explained this to a client once of like, hey, um, you're missing your aerobic base. Your strength is okay. Your nutrition is horrible. And then you get protein. And if we mark all these things out, uh, starting from the middle going out, you look like a really fucked up amoeba. <laughs> you're pretty good in this one area and you're missing all these other areas over here. So let's try to get you to look more like a, a circular type, more human thing where your qualities are more spread out. And again, you're always going to be somewhat asymmetric. That's just being human. And they're like, oh, oh, that makes sense. Oh, that's why you want me to do these other things. Uh, yeah, but they're all getting towards that same goal. I like that though, because like, again, most people's interventions is like, you need to fix your diet and be an amoeba this way. And when that doesn't right. work, you need, you need to find, you need to find your why and your inner spirit in, right. you need to go to therapy and like, they, they only more, push one right. or the other and thinking that that'll work. But like, really it could just mean like you don't walk enough or yeah. you don't work out or there's a lot of things that might get them there, but we always tend, and I don't want to say always, but the bigger focuses end up being on that. And Jeb, Jeb and I have a, like a, a, a grudge against finding your why, but it's, it ends up being like, it's just interesting to see the interventions that people go to are always the same ones as opposed to looking at any other intervention to get this thing. And that's why I like, we wanted to bring you on. Cause it's like, there's other things to think about other than nutrition, even though food's important. And you oh, never yeah. not said that like the whole fucking cert is on nutrition. <laughs> well, I think what's really interesting about this entire conversation is that, um, I use a lot of these things as acute interventions. Mm-hmm. So I'm big into like people having emotional eating episodes. I, I we, you know, the, the initial thing in, in dialectal behavior therapy is to like stick your face in a bowl of ice water, which is not very applicable for most people. But so I do a cold ice pack on the back of the neck. It helped. I mean, innumerable people are like, this is a game changer. From from you, I RPR I use mm-hmm. as um kind of a, a thing a, a big for me is like if someone's commuting home from work before they go in the house, I'm like do the yep. quick RPR reset and some deep breathing exercise before you go in. But to think of these things as preventative measures, yes, is a whole like like I, I love that idea, and it's like because if it works as an acute intervention, why wouldn't it be something that just works in that same manner kind of more uh long term which i think is it's crazy like i'm like it's like seeing that as 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 a um as a long-term you know maintenance almost yeah that's why rpr works because it's like cold tank it just sucks so much yeah like and you have to do it like there's no way around it it's like to get this thing it has to suck and maybe that's why people like feel good about getting tattoos too. They're like, it's like, it's, yeah. it's like meditation afterwards. Like, Oh, but, it is. I, I go into a, like when I have like my back, like there was, I mean, there was times that you just didn't have a choice because it was just awful. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I like your point too. And I think of it as, can I, I'm Ben House and you guys have talked a lot about this. In a perfect world, could you completely change your environment and would that have a massive effect on you and your goals? Absolutely, 100%. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's going to argue against mm-hmm. that. Like, you know, helicopter him into Ben's place for two weeks and, you know, do whatever. Awesome. The hard part is that that's just not reality, right? Mm-hmm. The reality is you've got a person going around who can, you know, tweak their environment a little bit, but they're probably going to their same job. They're probably driving the same way. They're in the same car. They're in the same positions. 
there's a lot of stuff that they just they can't change at that point or if they do change it it's going to be a long-term thing it's not going to be an acute thing they're going to change overnight and probably for good reasons however if we make them better as an individual and more robust anti-fragile as an organism my goal is you can drop them into all sorts of other heinous situations Mm -hmm. and they're okay oh i just had two pop tarts and fell into a birthday cake Oh, great. My blood glucose went up to 130, but it didn't skyrocket to 255, right? I don't want to do that every day, but it was okay. And I wasn't super hungry. And now I'm back to normal again. All right. So with clients, I explained to them that, you know, if Maynard James Keen from Tool showed up at my door one morning and says, hey, we're in town, come to the show. And we're going to hang out afterwards till five in the morning. I want to be like, hell yeah. <laughs> right. Like I want to. The- He's got yeah, a ground belt. Want- yeah. I want to be able to do those extreme things on occasion with the least amount of, of side effects possible. And I think that can be done, but that takes training and being more prepared for that because all those things in life are going to come at you, whether it's office yeah. parties, people throwing bagels at you, you know, social events, you know, whatever. That's just part of life. And I think you can be better able to handle those things and you're just going to be better overall. But I think that big picture focus sometimes gets lost. And I think that's where client motivation drops off too. Because they're like, oh man, you're telling me I just have to eat, you know, soggy broccoli and chicken breast the rest of my life. And I got to bring all my food to every social event. I can't go out on Friday night. And eh, this really sucks. I don't want to do it. I'm out. (laughs) And most people don't need to do that. This is kind of the explanation, too, of like why certain people, they probably naturally have some physiological and psychological flexibility, succeed at like things like special forces, Navy SEALs, like and then they go through that training. I mean, think about what Bud's training is, freezing cold water out on the beach, drowning, uh, physical activity, no sleep. And the guys who make it through are people who are probably naturally predisposed to that. But if those are qualities that we can train it explains why the Jocko Willings of the world get to say, just, just try harder. Or the David Goggins of the world, just try harder because they are those guys who can just do that now yeah. because they've those, trained those, those are qualities. The, those are the outliers, right? Right. And I love those dudes. They're awesome. You know, yeah. but if I took the Goggins model, would I have most of my clients do that? Not in a bazillion years. <laughs> Am I glad <laughs> that guy time, exists? Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'm glad he's out there. Right. Cause I think people get motivation from that. Again, those are the outliers. Those are showing you what is possible. Um, but if you even back up, like I've you know, trained some people for you know, special forces selection. And the person that makes me the most nervous is the, the guy who comes in. It's typically a guy, typically a bodybuilder, typically very precise with all their nutrition. They have yeah. all their supplements laid out. You know, they have a pretty good physique. Their aerobic base is not the best. And I look at them. I'm like, yeah, you're going to get your ass handed to you. I'm like, what? I'm like. Your nutrition is actually too good and too perfect. It's like, no, this is what I need to do. I need to be at this level. I'm like, do you realize what the job entails once you're done, right? Do you really think you're going to get your creatine every day and you're going to be able to eat pristine, organic, raised, you know, whatever? Like, probably not. I can actually guarantee you not. So let's train you and, quote, dirty up your diet a little bit, see how you can react, make you more anti-fragile, so that when you get dropped into these situations, like assuming you pass, which you are definitely going to, you're going to be better able to you know, handle it at that point. Um, you talk to anyone who's done you know, special forces stuff, like those people are crazy because 
they're extremely well trained, but they're so adaptable at the same time, right? It's one of those rare cases where you are hyper-specialized, but yet you're still in some ways very much a high-level generalist to be able to operate in those particular environments with that particular skill set. What's my brother when he went through, he, he, he passed first time, he ain't ranger school, everything. He was like, he's like, I don't really think it was a big deal. And I was like, well, like, how do you do it? He's like, well, I figured they're, they spent too much money on me. They're not going to kill me. Yeah. That was literally yeah. his, his baseline. He's like, as long as they yeah. don't kill me, I'm good. Yeah. Another thing, you know, one guy I talked to made it through ranger school. He's like, I know they have to feed me. Right. So at yeah. some point. They're going to feed me. Well, I just need to make although, it to the next food. Although I remember Thanksgiving one year when he was he was in, I think it was Thanksgiving, he was at Ranger School. And they were like, all right, guys, Thanksgiving dinner. Come on in, everybody. We're going to have the day, and you guys can just eat. And they just piled food on because they hadn't eaten in like two days. They gave them all turkey <laughs> and mashed potatoes. And then as they were finishing, they were like, go all right, back. everybody, go. And just ran them yep. out until they puked. Made them puke no. everything up. And just, oh, yeah. <laughs> just torture. But think about it. That's exactly that's a real life scenario, right? I mean, exactly. if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you all of a sudden get access to food, you're probably going to eat a lot, right? It's a whole, yeah. you know, argument I made with like the paleo man, right? Was paleo man like, you know, ketogenic or carnivore? It's like, no, he's going to metabolic flexibility. Better. He or she's going to eat as whatever he can find, right? Yeah. So if there's no woolly mammoth for two days, you better be good at eating twigs and berries and very yeah. little food. If you find the honey hive, it's how many times do you want to be stung before you're done eating honey, right? You can't afford to pass out under the honey hive in an insulin-induced stupor because then you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> but people think that they're going to, like, pass up, like, honey. Like, no, there's, like, all these crazy videos of people in the jungle, like, scaling, you know, massive, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. trees just to get honey. You're like, holy shit, you're making me nervous watching this. So it's a very prized commodity. It's just our society now is the inverse. Yeah. Well, I think that's the perfect kind of cap right there, man. Like, yeah. I don't know this, like this definitely went in directions that I wasn't expecting to, but it's oh, way good. cooler. <laughs> like this no, is way cooler. Than, like again, the whole, like, cause I love the physiologic flexibility. I think even more so than the metabolic flexibility. Yeah. I just think it's, it's so fascinating and it's something that um, we're seeing pra- in practice, not a lot in research. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's, again, why I always love your ask, your views is because you don't poo-poo things that are like, don't have a lot of, you know, mechanistic connection. You're like, hey, if it works, like, I don't really care why, like, let me try it. Let's see what it goes. Let's see what goes. And, um... And I have become, you know, I think it's really easy to be like, well, where's the evidence for this? Where's the evidence for that? It'd be like, yeah. well, this is the evidence is that it's working with these people. Well, like, we're at the point now, and I, I and we do nutrition, so it's like, don't get this twisted. But it's like, nutrition's almost the, not my highest leverage point at all. It's more physiological and it's more physical a lot of times because, like, yeah, again, I, I don't want to say people can eat whatever they want, but they're going to. So it's like. I don't know. To me, it's not a high leverage. It, it, it can be, but that's where it's like to the individual. But once you kind of do some of the research and try some of this stuff, there's a lot of merit, obviously logistics of life and all this stuff. But I guess that's why they take your course to learn kind of where they can include this stuff and what it does, because 
it's, it's, you don't know till you know, but then once you know, you have a lot more tools in your toolbox as opposed to just macros. I know we should on macros, but like, if that's the only tool, uh, you might have some trouble is kind of what you're right. saying. But you, you, you need that tool too. Like we need, yeah, oh, we need yeah. to have a good toolbox. So yeah. and that's why in the flex that I started, I didn't include like, there's a whole primer on just basic exercise. Yeah. Right. Exercise versus recreation. There's a whole primer on neat, right. Walking, uh, movement because people are like oh but i thought this is nutrition only and it's like yeah it's geared towards nutrition and recovery but you can't just throw those things out and say that they're not important but how do you fit them into the system and where did they fit in is going to be useful and th- there's a whole part of metabolism that's calories out so. yeah exactly <laughs> which people forget right and they both regulate each other right and that was yeah. the hardest part in the cert was just to explain to people that yeah they both they don't operate in a vacuum right? They both affect each other. And right now we're, we're just better at measuring calories in. So we tend to hyper-focus on that. Uh, calories out, we're just not as good at measuring, but that's probably going to change in the future, but it's not yeah. going to be accurate enough still that it's going to be incredibly practical for every single person, right? Even if it was, even if I could give you a magical device to map everything in and out, you, you still have all the, the things you've talked about, Jeb and Dean, like you still have to still do the same things, right? So even mm-hmm. the technology is not going to save your day either. No. no. In some it cases, it'll yeah. make it worse. <laughs> yeah, if the, for sure. If the, internet, if the internet shut down, I always use that as an example, but if the internet shut down, all these tech things weren't there, it would make no difference on the, the we'll call them action steps. You just can't, you're no. just not as accurate. And if they're not accurate anyways, like does it matter? It does, and it can, but like that's... I, I always and think who does it that. matter for? It matters yeah. for like on stage bodybuilders because they're right. the only people that are actually that accurate in their measurements. Like they're not and counting even macros then, there's still a twenty percent variance, right? There's I mean the RDA has a twenty percent variance alone. So you know So basically it's all it's all shit. Um thanks for coming out. <laughs> sometimes it's good, sometimes um, it's shit. Have a have a non shameless plug on on your stuff and, and include include the other stuff because I know we talked about it, but it, it's more because it all kind of funnels into your philosophy, which is what we wanted people to understand so that they could go deeper dive into it. Because we could not fit any, we can fit one twentieth of this into it. This, so if they want more, what, what do they got to do? Yeah, thank you. Uh, the best way is through the newsletter. So just go to miketnelson.com and scroll down. There'll be ways to get on the newsletter and the wait list uh, once they open. Uh, that's the best way to find out. I've got a bunch of content I send out probably five, six days a week. Uh, if they want more information on the Flex Diet Cert, just go to flexdiet.com, F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. And for the PhysFlex Cert, just go to physiologicflexibility.com. Um, but if they sign up through the newsletter, MikeTNelson.com, uh, they'll get notified of everything and when it opens. And I normally have some fast action bonuses that I only send out to the newsletter only too. So newsletter is the best place. How are we going to end this? Because this is maybe our second one, but even when it comes in a timeline, how, what's the, what's the, the natural ending to this, Jeff? I need you to do it because okay. you're, you're the, you're the voice. With, the, <laughs> with <laughs> that. <laughs> We we thank you, Mike, for uh, not just being here to to help us out and help all these people out. Again, leverage points. The more coaches that we get out there, the more people that can see this Definitely. stuff, the more people that can help. 
Um, and, and, you know, again, you know, not, we can't overstate the, fa- the influence you've had on both of us in our careers. And, um, you know, that's, that's helping us to help other people. And, um, you know, that it's, 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 uh, it, I don't, it, it's again, people, we like to bitch and make fun of the industry in a lot of ways. And, but, but there, there is, we've had so many great relationships come out of this and, and so many meaningful uh friendships and and you know you're you're right at the top of that list so we thank you so much and everybody you know obviously we see a lot of importance in this this content um so if this is something that you guys seek to learn more about just you know go to the Metflex and again this physiologic flexibility thing is super cool and, and that's um that's really kind of blowing my mind right now so i definitely want to dig more into that Cool. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for all the kind words and for having me on here. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Big thanks to Dean and Jeb and all Kyle, Matt, everyone over at Compound Performance uh, for allowing me to give you this interview that is included in their mentorship uh, right here for free, uh, which is great. Uh, Again, I don't receive any compensation for promoting their mentorship, but uh, I know it's got a lot of great information. So check out the link below uh, if you've got time or check out Compound Performance for more information. Thank you so much. As always, if you want to support the podcast, we would love it. You can hit subscribe. You can leave us comments and any questions you have, please get in touch, future guests, anything you want to see, let me know. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Talk to you all next week.